Welcome to Urgent Matters. Today we have a discussion on concussions sponsored by BrainScope. You can find out more about the portable EEG platform by following the link in the show notes. Joining Dr. Meltzer today will be Dr. David Levine. I'm a uh, emergency physician currently working as a regional medical director in the Northeast region, uh, covering sites in Ohio, Pennsylvania, and New York. Um, began working with uh, BrainScope about a month ago, uh, just kind of working help with, with getting their products um, up and running and education process for their teams and their rollouts. Um, I've had opportunities to be a facility medical director at several different locations, as well as EMS medical director. I was a former SWAT doctor, flight surgeon for our local helicopter service, and um, did my training at Metro Health Medical Center in Cleveland and went to school at University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio. And Dr. Will Den. Assistant professor at University of Arizona practicing sports medicine and emergency medicine. I am the lead editor of the Alien series uh, for the orthopedic series there and the co-chair of the subcommittee for um, sports medicine online education and a board officer for the ASAP sports medicine section. I am a team physician for the US ski and snowboard team and also a team physician for the Tucson Roadrunners. So I'm glad to be here. So excited to uh, talk to two experts in the field, talk about some new technology, talk about evaluating mild traumatic brain injury, and um, hopefully this will be a fun, relaxed experience and informational for our listeners. Um, Concussion can mean a lot of different things and present in different ways. When you say concussion, how do you specifically define that? So just make sure we're all talking about the exact same thing here. Uh, I can start. Um, So to me, a sports-related concussion or a concussion is within the spectrum of the mild TBI, the mild traumatic brain injury. Um, There is a a mechanism that resulted in this injury to the brain, so it doesn't have to be a direct hit. It could have just been, for example, a hyperextension or hyperflexion of the C-spine. So you have the trauma and then the functional stuff you need? Is there a criteria we need or can it be a, a whole bunch of different? So it, it kind of falls within the five domains. Um, so five or six domains. So if they're demonstrating vestibular symptoms, ocular symptoms, um, typically there's the headache, there's the cognitive aspect, feeling like they're in a fog, um, the fatigue aspect, and then also uh, the mood. And so if they fall within one or two of those domains, essentially, that's when we start talking about it being a concussion. I was thinking about uh, physicians at, say, an athletic event. Imagine your 18-year-old man sustaining blunt head trauma after getting, let's say, tackled to the turf while playing football. You're the physician at the scene. And um, what are we going to do at the sideline? How are we going to evaluate this person? And Dr. Dank, can maybe you start about what's the first things we're going to do? I know you're a team doctor for multiple teams out in Arizona. Um, how are you starting to see this patient? When are you going to refer this patient? How are you going to determine if this is a structural problem or, or something else? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it's something that we always kind of fear on the sidelines, but 
luckily, since we work in the emergency department, it isn't really so different from other people who sustain traumatic brain injuries um, when they're brought in on the gurney. But uh, essentially, it always comes down to your ABCs and your trauma evaluation at the sideline. If, for example, they've gotten hit and you can't clear their ABCs, then obviously you can stop right there and then you address the, the problems as you go. But if we're able to get them off the sidelines, you know, typically you want to get them in a closed environment. So for example, when you're working with a professional football team, we've got a little tent so that we can kind of get them away from the, no the noise of the crowd and we're, we're able to do our assessment a little better. Um, bring them in there and start going through our examination and we can definitely go into more detail on that. Starting off with the basics of kind of emergency medicine evaluation of somebody who sustained a blunt head trauma is kind of our first step. Are there specific evaluations you're doing? Let's say this guy can, you know, you get him to the sideline, he's sitting in a chair, you're looking at him, coach wants to put him back in the game. What are you looking for right away? If we've cleared our ABCs, um, making sure that we have a GCS of 15, and then beyond that, that's when we start doing our quick, quick tests. So um, it varies among the different um, team positions, but Traditionally, what we'll do is we will do a very uh, miniaturized version of the SCAT. We're, we're not only just asking them essentially for what they have remembered, so retrograde amnesia versus anterograde amnesia. What we're asking for also is their ability to kind of assess the situation, recall things, um, their balance, their strength, um, their ability to track, their ability to kind of make executive decisions. And so as you kind of go through layer and layer and layer, that's when you start to clear the patient. Thank you. Dr. Levine, are you using the SCAD exam too? It's not something I use in the ER. Considering the fact that I work at multiple different sites, a lot of sites have kind of different pathways that they follow between which different head rolls they're going to use based on location and, and local um, kind of flavor, the way that they prefer to do it. So, you know, a lot of what our, our guidelines are and we're, we're following are, are related really to the MIPS criteria and using that as a lot of our... Um, are focused in the way that we, we decide as far as what additional imaging and treatment and management is going to be used from that standpoint. Um, but so much of, of what we do and what we look at really boils down to that history um, because so much of, of the, the problem with head injuries is there's not always, you know, there are certain classic findings that we can look for, whether we're looking for evidence of a basal skull fracture or other type of injury, but a, a lot of things you don't find anything on your physical exam. Um, so, so much of it, like I said, really relates to what you find historically in that particular patient or if they've got other, you know, risk factors related to, you know, potentially increased chance of injury. So, when you talk about the MIPS, is that something in the field you're using or using in the ER? In the ER, yes. Okay. And you're using that to determine whether or not a person needs a CAT scan or not? Correct. So, what about, say, the receiver falls down, smashes his head, looked like he was down at least for three or four seconds and gets up and the coach is yelling at him to catch the ball next time. Um, what would your evaluation be there? I think what you always got to realize, again, is, is especially in that age group, and you're talking about, you know, you've got the coach and you've got other dynamics going on that sometimes, you know, unfortunately, um, the players slash patient, you know, at that time will try and, and downplay their injuries and will try and downplay what just occurred and downplay their symptoms, whether they're 
not being open and upfront with you telling you how severe of a headache they have, um, if they're having any kind of other focal neurologic deficit like vision changes um, or any other problems like that because they may be concerned about getting pulled out of the game and not being able to play. Uh, they'll be concerned about being put on a concussion protocol and not be allowed to play for several games even. So, you know, you've got a certain amount of what is your gestalt, you know, that you just, from what you, you saw in the mechanisms of, of that injury and how that, that patient slash player, you know, reacted afterwards, then and what are you going to do, you know, as far as part of that initial evaluation and assessment for them? So I think the, I mean, it's nice to have simple stuff for ER doctors. So I, I like the idea of the SCAT. It's not something I use. I know there's a SCAT 2 and a SCAT 5. Um, it's not something that I, I am familiar with. Dr. Dank, is that something we should, we should know about, you think? You mentioned it when you first spoke. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think that, you know, if you are a sideline physician, your responsibility is certainly a little different than that of an emergency physician, strictly because of number one, um, not just your role, but the amount of resources you have available to you. So I see the sideline physician as somebody who is the triage before the triage of the emergency physician. And so, um, you know, the SCAT-5 itself does take a little bit of time. Um, typically, if you're working with um, a team, you have a baseline SCAT so that you have something to compare to. You're familiar with the patient. You know if they've had concussions before. You know if they've dealt with it and how long the, the recovery was previously. Um, for the emergency physician, I think that it still kind of comes down to the basics. Again, like I, I think that we shouldn't try and make this too complex, especially when we're dealing with an entity that itself is relatively, I think, unknown. Um, we do know a lot about concussion, but I think for everything that we know about concussion, we, there are two things that we don't know about concussion. You know, I think we're, we're working really hard to try and understand it better, but from the standpoint of an emergency physician, um, being familiar more with the different aspects of how concussion can kind of influence a patient, I think is probably more important than knowing the SCAT-5 um, because the SCAT-5 is based on those elements. So for example, vestibular, ocular, cognitive, fatigue, um, cervical, anxiety, depression, mood, those are all things that can kind of ultimately um, influence a patient's outcomes, whether or not it's in the short-term or in the long-term aspects. Okay, so somebody talks to this patient, they're feeling maybe a little bit confused, um, or you think they're a little confused, you think maybe they're not quite with it, or maybe their balance is off a little bit, or they look a little somnolent to you, or something sort of triggers, okay, let's send this person to the ER for a more formal evaluation. You get to the ER, because um, we don't really have that many tools at the sideline, then you get to the ER and now you're thinking, okay, our big decision always is the CAT scan or not the CAT scan. I mentioned the MIMS. I mean, I, I don't use that. I think of the Canadian, the New Orleans, PCARN rules. Those are the ones that I sort of think about. Can you guys talk a little bit about use and overuse of CT scans, how you sort of decide whether or not to do it, especially in a young adult? And I think with older adults, we're doing a lot more of these CT scans, patients on anticoagulation. The, the real obvious ones I think are obvious. And obviously if you're seeing raccoon eyes and CSF leaks from the nose and you know they're confused and out of it, those are obvious. I'm talking about sort of the more mild TBI when you're deciding to, to do that CAT scan. Yeah, I, th I think you know, a lot of it, like I said, is, is related to, to working on looking at, at the history, your physical findings that you, that you get on that particular patient you know, identifying what, what you consider a high risk or a high mechanism of, of injury, 
where is the location of the injury? So what part of the, the head or face or skull was, was involved comes into play. Obviously, if they're having any kind of focal neurologic deficit or complaints, and some of these, again, are a little bit subjective when you're referring to and following the other head rules, you know, severe headache. Um, that's going to be something that's really going to be very dependent on that patient to determine, you know, what constitutes a severe headache. Um, clearly, you know, you, you run that situation, too, where, where you run into problems or, you know, the, the family, you know, can sometimes be promoting or trying to, to you know, steer, steer you one direction or the other based on how your treatment and management is going to be for that patient. Um, the, the things that I look for, like I said, you know, besides just that history and physical neurologic deficits, if you do have, like you said, you're, you're obviously right. If you've got CSF or, or, you know, significant battle sign or something, those are going to be other things that you're going to, to definitely want to do. But also part of it is, is what is their mental status like? Um, you know, Dr. Dan commented on as far as their, their cognitive evaluation, their cognitive ability. You know, if you're seeing any kind of significant deterioration in that. Um, another piece that comes into play is how is it progressing? You know, what was the mechanism of injury? What was the timing of injury? How long has it been um, as far as from the, the time of injury? And are their symptoms getting worse? Um, or are they improving? And that sometimes comes into play when I'm making my decision. I think one of the paradoxes of these decision rules, and especially with the CT scan for the head, we've noticed that sometimes they're misapplied, that actually they were designed to help us reduce our CT utilization. And some people actually have increased their utilization because of that. Have, have you seen that, Dr. Dank, at all? Or does that make sense to you? Uh, I mean, it's kind of why I started to kind of skew away from the New Orleans rule is because ultimately everybody gets a CT scan at the end of the day. Um, I've always used Canadian CT head, but even then that really isn't necessarily all encompassing. Um, you're going to have that 80 year old who accidentally brushed her head against a wall and she's got a massive subdural. And so without neurologic deficits. And so I think there are things that the Canadian CT head rule isn't going to necessarily catch, but to kind of, to echo what Dr. Levine was saying is um, the history is really important. And when that patient's kind of rolling in through your doors, you kind of want to get a better assessment. And if they aren't able to provide a good history, typically they come in with an athletic trainer or a witness or a mom or a dad um, who was able to kind of see or a coach who was able to see what was going on. Because ultimately, when that hit happens, if they have a blank look about them, if they noticed seizure-like activity, if they notice something serious that you would typically associate with potentially more than just an MTBI, then you're able to kind of get that history and then kind of move forward with your decision for CT head, even if your Canadian CT head or your PCARN is going to roll them out. And, you know, you're, you're absolutely right in that point that so much of that comes from the people who know the person, the people who should be, you know, looking to try and identify acute changes in them too, um, that sometimes we fail to, to pick up on those. Uh, one of the first episodes I ever ran into when I was uh, working as a medic and, and at that point was a football player who, who had a head injury and unfortunately um, didn't notify the coaches, didn't notify the team, um, kind of had progressing symptoms over a several day period and su subsequently ended up um, dying from, from a uh, subdural. And we live in the era of smartphones now. A lot of teams, even high school teams, um, have cameras on the players to review plays. So it's, it, it's helpful just to even ask because someone's going to have video and that way you can kind of look at the mechanism and 
something that turned out to be mild could end up being pretty severe or vice versa. That's interesting. Yeah, it could look pretty gnarly on video and the patient could maybe look okay in front of you. I think that the, the lucid interval concept is something that freaks everybody out. Um, the idea that you have an epidural and then you look fine. Um, I'm old enough to remember when uh, Liam Neeson's wife had that injury at the ski resort and I worked in the ER that next weekend and just how many people came in that weekend. It was just, it really just freaked everybody out, I think. But, you know, those things like that, you know, and those stories and those things, you know, do create awareness. Obviously, with, with NFL and other things, there's certainly been a, a much more a heightened sense of, of importance of recognizing concussion and managing those, which, you know, 20 years ago, nobody even thought of. You know, they just, they just figured just throw them back in and let them keep playing. Yep. Yeah. Especially with pop culture kind of picking it up with movies and things like that coming out with the chronic issues associated with concussion. Um, people are taking a lot more note and I've really never had any problems from the Olympic level down to the middle school level really had any, any problems at all, even with coaches kind of with the aspect of concussion. Once you say they're, once you've taken their helmet away, basically, you know, it's pretty much, up to you to give it back to them. So let's say your patient comes in, he's this young man who now has been sent to the ER, he has a negative CAT scan, he's about to leave and you're giving him some discharge instructions, you're telling him what to expect. You know, I've heard things about sleep, concentration, mood, presumably this person's a student. I've heard different things on brain rest and brain exercise. I, I honestly, I feel like I'm a little bit making it up and as we go along with some of our patients as we let them go. Can you give me some more concrete guidelines of what I should be telling my patient um, when they leave? I'm not talking about the pediatric patient who's really young and you're talking to the parents, but the person who you know, is a, presumably an independent young person. I agree with you. There's still a lot of uh, debate you know, on what the right approach is and, and how you manage it. Um, and I'm glad to, to hear you say you feel like you're making it up sometimes because unfortunately sometimes in medicine we just don't have all the answers and i think that's something that's very hard for us to always be willing to accept and, and recognize that you know the the data and the science changes and we have to be able to evolve my typical um, discharge approach and discussion with them is i, I kind of make reference to the way we manage the sprained ankle you know when you have a sprained ankle we rest it we splint it if it's bad enough, you stay off it and you, and you don't use it to allow it to heal. So, you know, I kind of equate that to what we're trying to do with, with brain rest and, and walk through, you know, the fact that if they're playing their video games, if they're watching TV, if they're texting on their phone, that that is significant work that the brain has to do. And, you know, I prep them and say, you know, I recognize how boring this is going to be, but really what you need to do is just go home and lay there and do nothing. And, and I usually kind of share the importance of making sure that they're, you know, without going into details of the prior cases or anything, but how important it is for them to be honest about their symptoms and to be able to make sure that they notify, you know, depending on their age, their, their parents, their, their family, their coach, whomever it might be, about changes in symptoms to make sure that they're not ignoring something that could be a warning sign that something's deteriorating. But if we're to focus specifically on kind of SRC, the sports related concussion side of things. Um, the education piece is probably the most important thing that an emergency physician could probably impart on the patient or the patient's parents, like what Dr. Levine had kind of alluded to, um, because there really isn't much education out there in the community. Basically, if it's, if it's somebody with a headache, they're like, oh, it could be a concussion. But if they're noticing the irritability, the depression, the anxiety that's starting to kind of pop up a month later, 
um, people might not attribute that to concussion. They might attribute that to bad grades or you know, bad breakup, whatever it may be. Um, when in reality, it's actually the concussion that's kind of causing this, or at least that was the inciting event. And so that's something to kind of think about, especially when we're educating our patients, kind of just telling them about the domains of what concussion can encompass so that they can kind of look out for that. And then the second point being, um, you know, when we're, when we're seeing concussion patients in the clinic, there's return to play and then there's return to learn, especially if you're dealing with a middle school student, high school student, college student, master's, PhD, MD, whatever it may be. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's so crazy with traumatic brain injury, it's this one, as they say, nail and our, essentially our hammer, for the most part as ER doctors is the CAT scan and a little bit with the decision rules. And then we sort of follow up with cognitive sort of assessments over time. And that seems to be sort of how we manage it at this point. Yeah, like, you know, to, to that point, it's, it's difficult to kind of, especially if you just saw them, like they had their mechanism like three hours before and then they show up to your ED, rule them out, you've observed them and then you discharge them, their symptoms might not actually pop up until 48, 72 hours later. And so ultimately it's even your first assessment may not catch everything. It's to kind of like we had talked about with uh, patient education, you know, how, how exactly can we inform them so that they're actually aware of these domains of concussion so that they themselves can watch out and that having the right follow-up saying, you aren't demonstrating signs of a concussion right now. Yes, you do have a headache, but you could develop a concussion, right? You could develop symptoms of a concussion so here's follow-up with the neuro clinic, with the sports medicine clinic, with whatever resources you have available locally to you. And, and the resources point is, is an important piece too, because there is a lot of variation between what is available to them. You know, if you're out in a, in a rural part of the country with, you know, some, some locations, you don't even have neurology for follow-up and it's the, the local family practice or internal medicine doctor that's following up with them. So there, there is a, a significant variability in the way that these patients are managed in the outpatient setting and in that, that follow-up. As far as any, any good testing or any kind of, of biomarkers, I mean, there is you know, research being done for, for that, for biomarkers um, that will, may at some point be able to help diagnose it. You know, there is um, additional testing that's out there currently that, that was um, recently approved using um, AI technology to help facilitate an EEG. Uh, waveforms to try and you know diagnose concussion and, and brain injury on more of a functional level and being able to actually give better details as far as how is it progressing and you know how severe the the basic injury related to that. So I, th I think there's definitely going to be a lot more you know coming forward in from the technology world that's hopefully going to make this you know an easier uh, diagnosis for us and an easier way to to manage these patients. Yeah, definitely. There's um. I think two FDA-approved blood biomarkers that people are investigating currently, and then over in Europe, they use a slew of letters and numbers type biomarker that uh, they are also testing to detect whether or not there's injury to the brain, almost kind of like a troponin. And is there any role for doing neuropsychological or neurocognitive tests in the acute setting? Is there anything I should be doing? I mean, I'm gonna ask them if they have a headache, if they're dizzy, if they have visual changes, I'll probably ask them if they're confused or not. Do they seem normal if their friend's there? I'm not probably going to do anything real formal, though. I mean, should I be? 
the concussion evaluation can get rather involved. It's to the point where, you know, sometimes you're billing a level five in the office because you've spent more than an hour with a patient kind of doing a head to toe evaluation of, of their concussion symptoms. But um, in the ED, there are a couple of things that I do that kind of help to better suss out whether or not they've suffered from a concussion. Um, I know there are checklists. Um, if you go on the CDC website, they have this very meticulously laid out outline of how to evaluate for a concussion. Um, but I kind of keep mine pretty simple. So if I've ruled out or I've said, let's not do a Canadian, let's not do a CT head, they rule out from a PCARN standpoint or a Canadian CT head standpoint, I just want to suss out a little bit more of what actually their concussion is involved, uh, what, what actually their concussion potentially involves. Um, I will do something akin to a VOMS test. Uh, I can kind of get a good assessment of their vestibular and ocular systems. I will test their memory to a certain extent. But uh, uh, the caveat being that um, certain patients with concussion may present with things that, you know, you, you enter in that gray zone where you're wondering whether or not they've had a posterior stroke. And so uh, sometimes people with concussions will have vertical nystagmus, they'll have rotary nystagmus, they'll feel like they're off balance and they can't really walk right. And then you kind of enter in that gray zone of they're young, they have trauma. Is this a vert artery dissection or is this a concussion? And so I think that's where you start entering the gray zone of, man, if I hadn't checked them for nystagmus, I guess I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have known, but did I just miss a dissection in a young patient? And so that's something that ultimately kind of always gives me pause. I think those are, are great points and, and you're right about, you know, how much time and, and the normal practice. And like I, I personally, my normal practice don't necessarily go into to that extent. Not if you guys have ever heard the the joke as far as, you know, what is the definition of an, of an ED doctor's neurologic exam? <laughs> yeah. Head CT. Yeah. Um, I, you were smiling. I knew you, you had heard it before. Yeah. But, but there is some, some truth because again, in the ED with, with all the, the, you know, other factors that we have and, and so many other patients that you're trying to see, you don't have time to do that full detailed, you know, evaluation like that for, you know, spend an hour with the patient, you know, and that's, and that's a, a piece of that puzzle that I think we are lacking in our initiating proper care for managing concussions. Um, because I think it, it comes into play where it affects it, that we're probably either overdiagnosing or underdiagnosing, you know, probably on, on both scenarios that, that occurs. Um, because of the fact that we're not going to that other, other step like that. And, and that is, is one piece where, you know, we kind of alluded to with some of the technology and some of the other things that are, are currently either on the market, like BrainScope, that is able to actually look at a functional component and utilizing EEG data and analyzing that to tell, is there a functional component that at least is able to grade it and allows us to kind of then follow them as an outpatient and be able to monitor and decide, you know, when are they cleared to play? How is this going to come into, you know, as far as what additional follow-up needs to be done for that patient based on, on how significant their symptoms are? Um, so I think, like I said, I think there's going to be a lot more coming forward over the next, you know, year, five, 10 years, as with everything within healthcare, it continues to evolve and continues to change. So you mentioned BrainScope. I mean, obviously BrainScope is sponsoring this podcast. I would like to 
hear a little more of your thoughts about how BrainScope can potentially be used as a functional test, because it does seem like there is something missing in terms of how we evaluate functional brain performance after uh, brain injury, and potentially this is a, uh, a way that we can uh, evaluate that a little bit. Um, so I, I know you're working with a company now, David, can you tell me a little bit more about BrainScope and how you're using them? So, so BrainScope um, essentially uses a EEG format. So just, you know, it, there's electrodes that are placed in the forehead um, that are able to actually monitor and interpret the EEG waves. Um, utilizing AI technology has allowed the identification on a, on a much different scale than, than what EEGs used to be utilized for when they were used, you know, primarily looking for seizures and other type of epilepsy and that type of component, where they're able to identify subtle changes within the electrical activity within the brain to distinguish between the, the potential uh, for structural injury. Um, we're detecting up to um, or down to one cc of blood in the brain. So using that as a first step to kind of screen. I, I equate its use to being very similar to the D-dimer and the fact that when it's a negative scan, it is 99% sensitive to tell you that there is not a significant bleed in the brain. Um, again, using one cc as that criteria. Um, if it's an abnormal brain scope scan, then that just indicates you need to go to that next step, whether CT is indicated or further history and physical to help make that decision, you know, as to whether or not to image. But then the, the second component is using the, the brain function component and looking for any kind of functional injury, which is taking into account more of that detailed cognitive exam that takes an hour to perform. This is able to do that looking at the electrical activity in the brain to determine, you know, what type of, of functional status that that individual patient has. Um, and the thing that, that's nice with this is it doesn't require a, a pretest, a pre-injury scan. It's able to still be able to tell and identify structural or, or uh, functional injury based on just how they perform. Gotcha. So potentially the application would be pre-CT as a way to decrease radiation exposure, similar to what we're doing with clinical decision rules, or potentially the future of biomarkers, or post-CT as we try to understand whether or not there truly is a, as we say, concussion or functional injury, and maybe even a predictor of what the course it'll be as a way to follow up when Dr. Denk sees them in the sports medicine office, plus in the ER, different applications in, in both places. Have you used EEG for any of your traumatic brain injuries? I haven't. Um, I was doing some research um, on brain scope and I kind of was just, it's, it's something that I've heard about and um, you see plenty of abstracts um, regarding, um, but I hadn't actually uh, dove into the evidence of, of it all. I think it certainly has its role and it's very interesting. Um, especially like what you're mentioning with the CDRs that we use, because like we had talked about earlier in this podcast is you're going to find that bleed that didn't pop up with the Canadian CT head rule that you decided to CT scan anyway. And so um, I can definitely see there being a role. I think um, I myself need to do some more research into this and I'm excited to see where they're going with this. Um, I think at least my experience with EEGs has always been uh, in general, uh, at least when you're ordering it in the ICU, is the read always comes back as um, indeterminate or unknown. Like they're not, they're not entirely sure on how to interpret the waves um, based off of that scan. 
And upon my brief review of the literature, it seemed like there were some that had to be thrown out because of that. But of the ones that were able to be interpreted, you could get a very good reading from. So I'm excited to see kind of where this all goes. And, and really, you know, as with all of our new technology that, that comes out, you know, most things are designed to augment what we're currently doing and to help get better at, at diagnosing and managing um, as opposed to necessarily replacing you know, good old fashioned history and physical. I mean, that's at the end of the day, you know, all of our, all of our tools that we use, you still have to rely on, on looking at the whole global picture of that patient. Yeah. And you mentioned D-dimer. It's not like we've gotten rid of PERC or, you know, Wells criteria or other types of things. It's not like we've gotten rid of CT angio. It's another thing we use. So I think that's a good parallel. Uh, well, I think we've sort of exhausted our time. Thank you so much for joining us. I think this was a really great discussion and I think we covered a lot of topics and uh, if either of you have any closing comments um, thank you again for joining Urgent Matters. Thank, thank you thank you for inviting us I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for having us just remember educate your patient make sure that they understand what they're leaving with and keep it real. Urgent Matters was founded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation in 2002. Since then, it has served as a dissemination vehicle for the best practices in emergency care through our webinars, podcasts, newsletters, issue briefs, innovation awards, and national meetings. Currently sponsored by the Ronald Reagan Institute of Emergency Medicine at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., Urgent Matters supports innovative care strategies and is a resource for the ED community to discover field-tested new initiatives that can be tailored to their local practice or organization. Our editorial board consists of a holistic group of stakeholders, including ASEP, West Health, EDPMA, and AACCP. How many 18-year-olds do you know are irritable and can't concentrate and don't sleep well? It's just like... Right. I just, well, and they won't be able to once you tell them they can't use their phone, right? Yeah, exactly. It's... <laughs> I feel like I'd be irritable. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. Take away a phone from anybody for me for an hour. Yeah. Totally yeah. true.